the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey. Governor Pritzker yesterday announced that he is dropping the mask mandate indoors by February 28th but not yet for schools. And it's not for everything. Uh, Hospitals, schools, uh, and some other places are still going to have the mask mandate in place, but places like restaurants and gyms and other things where we've gotten used to putting our masks back on because uh, the lowering numbers, the numbers are going down. He said our total, our daily total of COVID patients has fallen from over 7,300 to about 2,500 today, a 66 percent drop. Uh, Aubrey, I want to know just what you think when you heard this news, and then we're going to move into the school discussion because things, <laughs> at least in my town, are going crazy, crazy. right now. Yeah. Just hearing, generally speaking, the the kind of the, the end of the mask mandate coming, how are we feeling about that? Yeah, I'm feeling great. I mean, I think this is the right move, you know, because we are seeing the numbers go down, and we're seeing most people that have gotten, including myself, gotten om- Omicron and have survived it. And it looks like from at least what, you know, the science is telling us that mid-February, which is we're almost there, things will really, really die down. Then I, I think this is the right move. But I do think we need to move on to talking about the schools. That's maybe <laughs> a different conversation. <laughs> so when you were not here the other day, when you were dealing with your family emergency, and thankfully everything's good, uh, it is when everything had hit with the schools. And Aubrey, uh, I told the audience on that day that if I finally broke and deleted Facebook off of all of my stuff because oh, wow. Facebook, Facebook, at least my feed had turned absolutely crazy uh, with people uh, just being vitriolic and mean about the mask mandates in school. Well, now this yeah. court case just happened. They shouldn't happen. And you know where I stand on this. I would love to see our kids out of masks. But now I know at our kids' high school, there's right now a separate room in which they're putting the kids who won't wear their mask. And, uh, you know, and, and they're having to do basically online school in school in the building. Mm, yeah. And uh, you got other people just upset. There's kind of no end in sight. Aubrey, it is. I've never seen it like this. And honestly, I've become really disheartened by a lot of my town, a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, that I know. It's, I've mm-hmm. found this to be extremely disheartening, well beyond masks. Yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, it's sort of like a, I don't even want to call it a microcosm of the whole world. It is the cosmos of the world in America yes. right now. Like it, it, I, I haven't gone so far as to go off Facebook. And partly, I don't know if the people that I follow or follow me are having this conversation maybe as much in your world or I'm just not on Facebook enough. But um, I will say I got an email from somebody who I don't even know but asking me about this and I was like, I'm not going to respond. I'm not even going to step into these waters. Yeah. They're like a little too, they're like a little, it's a little too uh, controversial right now. I, uh, I mean, you and I have said before, like 
we're yeah. ready for our kids not to be in masks. But if it's the right thing, we're okay with it. So that's where I'm like, I just, I guess I just wish everybody else would kind of like chill out a little bit. But that's probably me just like being afraid of controversy. Long story short, Feb 28, I don't know why school masks need to still be in place. Right. And I don't think kids need to be separated in these other rooms. I mean, it's just like, if you want your kid to wear a mask, wear a mask, but they should be in the classroom and vice versa. If by Feb 28... Mm -hmm kids don't have to wear masks then we should mask and unmask in the classroom together you know yeah and to stay consistent uh putting a date on it encourages me because i said the other day that i thought a lot of our problems were from a lack of leadership saying as long as things are heading in this direction here's our date here's where we're going so that everybody can hold on to it uh uh, on, I understand the um, the people's frustrations. Like I think about our own schools. I understand the frustrations where, where I'm struggling right now, just to be honest, is the number of adults that I see using their kids as pawns to make a point. Oh, uh, I, you, okay. I really I am see. struggling with that. I've got uh, – and some people that I know, this isn't just uh, people – and they would push back and say, you know, we're standing up for our rights. Now's the time, the court case. And I agree. I, I again, am putting this out there that I'm ready to be done with masks in school. Uh, but but the the um, the grandstanding I see by people on Facebook videoing their kid walking into school and w- videoing their kid getting confronted, putting their principal in a really weird spot uh, or whatever else doesn't feel help. Maybe it is helpful. Maybe that's what actually pushes the ball forward. I, I, but you yeah. watch these kid. But you watch right. these kids, and you're going. This can't be healthy. And this is kind of the social media age we live in. I saw one person posted a video of their kid walking in and getting turned away and then gave a speech and was like, send this to all the news stations. What are we trying to accomplish right now? So I feel in a really weird spot right now, to be honest with you, because I would like to see the mask go away, the court case, all this kind of stuff uh, in schools. Uh, But I do not agree with how a lot of people are going about it right now. And it feels like at least in our town, the, the gasoline is being turned up. It's not being turned down at all right now. Yeah, I I agree with you, Brian. And I do think, I mean, a a question that I have, too, is like, have those parents asked their kids if it's okay that they're doing this? Like, it feels so, I know, like, the bigger political point they're trying to make, but it does feel demeaning to the kids. And so at the end of the day, you're, you're right. Like, this is not dying down. It's like inflamed right now. But like, I don't, I mean, I understand it's an issue for people and they feel very strongly about it, but I'm also like, everybody just like turn the volume down a little bit and let's, things will unfold. Masks will be gone. Maybe I'm naive, Brian. Feel free to push back on that. I just don't (laughs) think the, I just don't think anytime we're being so outrageous is the right move. Yeah. And uh, to be this is for me. This is for me. I don't. I, sometimes you and I can maybe be a little Pollyanna about these things. But yeah. how about you send? An, how about you send an email to your principal? Hey, I really appreciate all that you do. Uh, I really appreciate. But can I just kind of tell you what I think? Uh, they're going to hear that, and it's not even really the principals. It's the superintendents. It's whatever else. It's the board of education. Uh, our town has like a special board meeting next week, and you couldn't get me to go within five miles of that. Oh heck no! I mean, that's going to be a scary, scary place. <laughs> You could get because I'm watching the Facebook chatter and how it's going to go. And so I find myself really 
torn here because I'm very excited. Masks are coming off. I want to see them off at school, but man, am I disappointed in the in the way says some people uh, are acting. And I think it's everything about our social media age and and this. It's just. Ah, I can't take it right now to the point that Facebook has been deleted from all of my devices. <laughs> it is oh, gone. Oh, wow, Brian. Okay. So, yes, okay. yes. I'm sure I'll get sucked back in at some point. One but day, for yeah. Now, maybe, maybe after Easter. This could be your early Lent. This is my early Lent. I got it. <laughs> uh, up next, we're excited to talk to Dr. Elsie McGee. Uh, she co-authored a book called Cradling Abundance, One African Christian Story of Empowering Women and Fighting Systemic Poverty. We are super excited to talk to Dr. McGee next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by the co-author of a book called Cradling Abundance, One African Christian Story of Empowering Women and Fighting Systemic Poverty. She's a retired professor of Reformation Studies and the History of Worship at Princeton Theological Seminary. That is Dr. Elsie McGee. Dr. Elsie, how are you doing today? I am wonderful. Thank you. And Brian and Aubrey, I am so grateful to you for inviting me to bring my best friend, Mama Monique, to visit you. Oh, we can't wait to talk about her and about the book. But Elsie, before we do that, really briefly, tell us about yourself, just so that people who are listening can get to know you a little bit better. I am the daughter and granddaughter of American Presbyterian Christians who spent uh, their lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo as teachers and preachers of the gospel and doing all kinds of other things. If the truck is broken, you have to fix it. If there's not, <laughs> if there's not food for the students, you have to find a way to feed them. Yes. My father said he spent 10% of his time doing what he was supposed to be doing and 90% all the rest of the things that made it possible. Mm, wow. So I was born and grew up there, and my baptismal name is Chimunyi, which means torch. And it is a part of the language that was spoken in the province where I grew up, uh, Chaluba. There are actually hundreds of languages in Congo, but there are four main trade languages. And I happily was born in the area where one of the trade languages uh, was prominent, Chaluba, which means that uh, I could move around our whole province, even though it's quite a large area with lots of different languages. Wow, that is incredible. And Elsie, the name of the book, as Brian said, is Cradling Abundance. And it is about the life of an incredible woman who you've called your best friend. We're going to refer to as Mama Monique. Can you just dive into her story a little bit and why you felt like it was so important to share it with the world? Mama Monique is one of the most inspiring people I have ever met. She's one of those people who you'd meet and think, wow, she's doing some interesting things. I can see God moving in her life. And then you learn more and discover that that was only the tip of the iceberg. That's the things that she is enabling other people to do to find uh, new life, new hope, new dignity, uh, a way to recognize themselves as made in the image of God. It's amazing what you learn as you make her acquaintance. So we didn't actually meet until we were adults. Although mm. we were born in the same province in Congo, we were born in very different parts of it and went to school in different languages. So we met as adults and 
I found that she was doing incredible things with, especially for women and girls, uh, fighting violence against women and girls, all forms of uh, violence, uh, issues of their destitution. These are the least of the least Mm. uh, and ways to enable them actually to feed themselves and their children and maybe even to get an education. Most Mm. of them are illiterate in many cases. So when I encountered that story, my first impulse was to say, I've got to help her. But my second one was, I've got to tell people about her. And so over the course of about 10 years, uh, whenever we met, whether it was in Congo, and that was a number of times, or in the States, when she came to visit, uh, to speak in churches, uh, I would tape her story. It was very uh, complicated because we would get started on one subject uh, and then uh, we would move to another one. And so the story uh, was very broken up in different ways. My most common phrase was, when, when, tell me when this was. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that, well, yeah. so when the, I get to the point of putting it together, I have some idea of sequence. And then I transcribed it hundreds and hundreds of pages of French and uh, translated it into English. And then I had to cut a lot of it because I had gotten so much material from her and also from interviews that I did with colleagues and students and people she had helped, that there was more material than I could possibly put into it. But it was just a privilege to be able to invite other people to get to know her. And I'm really grateful to IVP uh, for making that possible. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating book. Elsie, uh, you know, for for American readers, that's what our listeners are who read this book. Uh, how do you hope that they are encouraged? And secondarily, how do you hope they're challenged by reading uh, this story of this fascinating person? How they would be encouraged, I think, is to see that someone who has uh, so much less than they do uh, has been able to make an incredible impact. She's deeply rooted in her faith. She's very courageous and compassionate, uh, but she manages to make something out of nothing. Mm. Uh, I always tease that she's doing everything on a shoestring and giving away half the shoestring. So my job is to help her find a few more shoestrings. <laughs> Great. So I think that would excite people. I think they also would probably find that one of the challenges is simply to imagine yourself in a situation in which you do not have assurance, really, of political or financial security, and yet you are able to praise God, you are able to reach out to other people, you are able continuously to thank God for God's mercies and trust God. That, for me, is one of the most amazing challenges that she and her friends. African church is a praying, singing, trusting church in a way that really stirs my heart. Mm. And with that in mind, I'm sure there are some powerful ways that that women um, around Mama Monique are expressing their faith that uh, we in the States could learn from. Could you share any of those stories? One of the things that people around her are doing is managing to continue to care for their families in spite of the fact that 
often they don't have enough to put on the table to feed them. Some of the women with whom she works are basically destitute. Uh, for example, one woman was abandoned by her husband because she had only daughters. Boys are preferred. You don't want girls. And so she has been trying to feed her children ever since. But she does it by things like selling uh, donuts, which she makes. But what happens if the price of flour and sugar uh, goes up and you can't buy the same amount of materials for the same price, but you still can't raise the prices of your donuts or you won't sell them? How do you manage then to feed your children? And yet these women don't give up. They come to Mama Monique for help. Uh, they come and join in a Woman Cradle of Abundance, FIBA's uh, monthly gatherings for prayer and encouragement. They bring their 50 cents of savings for a micro-savings loan. And then they go right back to looking after their families. Mm. Dr. Elsie McGee, as we said, is a retired professor of Reformation Studies in the History of Worship at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, she has co-authored this book, Cradling Abundance, One African Christian Story of Empowering Women and Fighting Systemic Poverty. You can order Elsie and Mom and Monique's book on Amazon or at ivypress.com and learn more about supporting Woman Cradle of Abundance at womancradleofabundance.org. Elsie, this was really a great pleasure. The book is fascinating. Hopefully people go out and get it. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you so very much for this time and warm greetings to everyone who's listening. Moyo wabuni. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. So over at Desiring God, I was just I, this caught my eye. Uh, it was called a daily prayer. Jo Joe Rigney wrote a daily prayer against unbelief entitled Lord, deliver me from me. And his whole article is based on Psalm chapter 16, verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Aubrey, when you hear that verse, I didn't prep you for this. Psalm 16, one, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If you read that uh, in your devotions or something, what sorts of things would come to mind as you read that verse? Um, in you, I take refuge. Mm. It makes me think of that scripture about, um, I'm going to, maybe it's even from the, maybe this is even from this, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, that image that we have of God, um, where he covers you with his feathers and there's other mm -hmm. images about God being like a, like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings. This, this concept of God as a refuge always makes me think of that, that the, yeah. like the, it sounds so bizarre to say, right. But the feathers of God sort of gathering me in mm. God being the one who is like what my kids and I talk about, like the blanket that you can crawl under and, and people may find offense with that, but I actually think that's really true. Like God is our comfort and our mm. refuge. Yeah. How does that play out practically for people? Oh, because yeah. You just said if people weren't with you, we started you're you're having one of those weeks where you had to go to the hospital with your son. Your husband's having surgery tomorrow. <laughs> Another son said he woke up not feeling well. Yeah, there are weeks, yeah. We all have those weeks and some people, yeah. those weeks are their life, right? Like that's right, all that's that their true. weeks are because of health issues or relational issues or whatever. 
So how do we crawl under that blanket of God's refuge mm. to use your imagery? Because it is a great church answer where we go, hey, God is my refuge and strength. Mm. But how do we actually live that practically so that it matters? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, we um, we do tend to go very like individual when we're thinking about this. Like, I need to be the one to crawl in under God's wings or, or whatever. But I, I think sometimes too, we, we can't remember that um, some of what it means to be in the refuge of God is to be in the refuge of Christian community. And mm-hmm. so that's when we can like call our close friends and be like, y'all, I can't, you need to pray for me. You need to hold my arms up. You need to, I need help. Like, can you, I need a meal, like those types of things. So I think relying on our Christian community and just asking for help. But then I also think practically for me, I, um, I, this morning, actually, I got up extra early because I was like, if I don't have time with Jesus, I think I might die. Hmm. And so I just spent some time journaling and praying and reading scripture and being like, Lord, I might, like, I feel like I'm on the verge of a meltdown. I'm okay. But I, you have got to sustain me through this thing because I'm so worried about my family. And I, de- you know, it just, it's starting to feel like too much. So God, can you be the, I didn't use this language, God, can you be my refuge? But I think ultimately that was the prayer of my heart. And so maybe that does feel churchy, but I still feel like this, the answer for me is to spend time with Jesus asking for help, period. Like I cannot like muster the strength on my own. None of us can, especially when our life is this, like I've had a hard week, but like you said, lots of people have hard lives. We cannot muster the strength on our own. And so I think just to be like, you know, there, there's sometimes those like 30 second prayers. And one of those is help me, Jesus. Yes. <laughs> I yes. like this. This is a uh, preserve me. Oh, God, for in you, I take refuge is a help me, Jesus prayer. Help me, Jesus. Right. I can't do this alone. That's right. Uh, this article says the prayer of Psalm 16, one is a prayer of faith since I'm no longer attempting to reason about God in his absence, absence, but addressing him as father in his presence. And through Mm -hmm. such awakenings and interruptions, God answers my prayer. He keeps me because I seek refuge in him. So even this idea of where are you, God, in the midst of all of this, uh, in the midst of this article, Aubrey, this might feel like a right turn, but he said something that just caught my eye. I was like, whoa, okay, I need Hmm. to think about that. Let me read you this quote. He wrote, uh, God is not a puzzle to be solved, but a person to be sought. Oh, wow. That's good. God is not a puzzle to be solved, but a person to be sought. Uh, unpack that for us, especially as it deals with when we're in just life is upside down and we need refuge and life is crazy. Uh, help us unpack what you think he meant by that. Yeah, I mean, I know when I've had seasons of like pain and suffering, your tendency can and this is the human tendency of all time. Is to be like, God, what are you doing? I need to figure it out. Give me some certainty. Give me a path forward. Help me understand. Where are you? You know, we ask those very human questions, very real questions. We're allowed to ask those questions. But I do think what we're trying to do in those questions, some is like gain some control back and to figure out what's happening. Right. And that's why Mm -hmm. I love that this puzzle metaphor is so apt, like figuring it out. But what, but what any of us, Brian, and I know you would affirm this, uh, any of us who have walked through suffering, what we found is like, like we actually don't have answers. Like there are things that are unreasonable, unspeakable, unanswerable. And, but what we find is God's presence is palpably and tenderly with us in those seasons. Mm, And so mm. I, I think I, I don't know how to do this well, except that we have to be like, 
all right, I am surrendering now my my need for certainty and and understanding, like eternal yeah. understanding. I trust that one day in new creation, I will see that right now, Lord, I just need you to be with me. It also, you know, makes me think of, um, you know, in the Exodus, when God is rescuing the Israelite people, like they're about to go through the Red Sea and it, it seems like all is lost. Like they're surrounded by the Pharaoh's armies. It just seems like they're not going to win. And God says to the people, look, you don't actually have to do anything. You need to be still and the Lord will fight for you. And this reminds me of that same thing. Like, I, I think sometimes we're so quick to be like, tell me what to do. I need to know what to do because I want to control yeah. it. I want to fix it. I want to solve it. I want. But what if the invitation is really like, just rest mm. and trust that God's at work? I mean, I think that's that's this is the same sentiment. God is not a puzzle to be solved, but a person to be sought. What if we just rested in his presence rather than trying to figure it all out? Easier said than done, but I think there is beauty there. Yeah. And the tr- in the trying to figure out the puzzle, it just adds to our anxiety and our stress yeah. and our burden. Yeah. Uh, this article ends this way. Yes, Psalm 16.1 is as profound as it is simple, as simple as it is profound. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore, I encourage you in the face of dangers and enemies, anxieties and fears, doubt and unbelief, make Psalm 16.1 your prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you... I take refuge. A really good word. A simple prayer that we can pray each and every day. All right, Aubrey, there's a new controversy on Twitter that that really caught my eye because it is called this. Hashtag Dear Brian. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I am ready to hear this one because it's also a pastor by the name of Brian. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. There was a hashtag going around the other day uh, called Dear Brian. Hashtag Dear Brian targeted at a pastor by the name of Brian. So I was getting very excited. I was like, have I finally made this? Have I finally got it? Uh, uh, but no, it is a pastor from Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah, by the name of Brian Suave or Suave, I think his name is. Uh, and he wrote this. All right. He wrote this on Twitter. And Aubrey, to say that it blew up and he got pushback would be a little bit of an understatement. He wrote this on Twitter. Dear ladies, probably a bad way to start, but yeah, dear no, ladies, start there. already problem. There is no reason whatsoever for you to post pictures of yourself in low-cut shirts, bikinis, bra, and underwear, or anything similar, ever. Not to show your weight loss journey, not to show your newborn baby, not to document your birth story, signed, your brothers. Is he just speaking on behalf of like all the men, or why does he sign to his brother, your brothers? Was there like a group of them? No, no, I think that was basically his way of saying, this is from all men. Like this is this oh, is from I see. All okay, okay. Uh, so every it it went crazy on on Twitter from people swearing at him. He said he got inundated. Quite frankly, yeah. and this is horrific. He got inundated by women uh, sending him naked pictures of themselves. Oh, I'm to sure. Be like I mean, this. he basically invited it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, author John Pavlovitz, who 
tangentially as a Christian author, he said, pastors like you are why the church is known for misogyny and the Mm. subjugation of women more than empathy and equity. You should try the sacred ministry of minding your own blank business. Uh, He did not say blank. And so it goes on and on and on and on. And Aubrey, as I read this story, uh, I had a couple different feelings. And you, as a woman, I would like to hear uh, (laughs) you unpack this. But as a guy, uh, there was part of me that was like, I agree with what you're saying. Oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah, sure, sure. Let's. I want to hear that. Well, here's why I. Uh, so, so here. Okay, let me give you the really big picture. I agree with what you're saying to a point. Wrong guy to say it. You don't need to actually post this, right? So, Aubrey, the number one thing I I can't tell you the number of people. Uh, that I've blocked on social media myself for this reason, not just women, but men who post pictures of women, whatever else it might be. This is kind of like my number one. Uh, I'm going to block this, not because, you know, oh, it's so sc- because I just don't want to see it. And I don't yeah. know why people do that. I guess I also lack. Uh, I'm like, why do people do this on social media? I don't understand it. And so for me, uh, I am like, you know what? I, I don't disagree with him that when, when women post like this, it makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it causes me to block. I also am self-aware enough to know that as a guy, I don't need to post this and lecture women about this. I can just get off of social media, block yeah. them, uh, yeah. look at the maybe, maybe look at the, uh, look at the, uh, spec, not in other people's eyes, but look in the log in my own eye. Am I, am I posting things that make people uncomfortable? Feels like an unnecessary public post with a sentiment that is not a hundred percent off base for me. So that's kind of where I would land on this. Okay. I'm going to maybe speak out of both sides of my mouth here. One is this. Unfortunately, this comes across as he has now commodified and objectified every woman ever, especially because he added these categories about your weight loss journey, your newborn baby, your birth story. I don't really understand why. I don't don't understand those categories at all. Um, I and unfortunately, this is sort of that same purity culture problem, which was it's the responsibility of the women to make sure our brothers don't lust after us mm-hmm. or that women are evil temptresses or that it it paints women in a paradigm that is so unbelievably misogynistic and sexist mm. that you here's the problem. And here's where it's going to sound like I'm, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Unfortunately, then you can't actually hear if there's some truth in this statement. Yeah, I got you. Know you know what I'm saying? Um, so he's one, he's not the right person to say it. Two, you can say it if you want to say it to your daughters or Thank to like you. your yep. women in your life. That's different than like, I will speak on behalf of all men to all women. There's, that's there's, right. um, there's the mansplaining, the misogyny, the, the patriarchy. I mean, there's so much wrong with this. Okay. That said, I don't want to see pictures of any men without their shirts on because Mm. I find them attractive and I can be Mm. honest about that. Like I have to block people. I don't want my husband looking at my friends if they're posting pictures in bikinis or bras. And so I'll be like, Hey, don't follow that person anymore. And he's like, yep, I'm I'm out. Cause you know, you (laughs) know, they're the people who are going to do it. So I agree that I don't think any of us, male or females, need to be posting provocative pictures on the internet, period. Mm-hmm. And But I don't think that's simply a, 
that's not just for women. That's for men too. And it, that's where I think this is, this is the big problem. And this has always been the problem is that men just think one, they're the only ones that have some type of like lust or visual problem or temptation or whatever that women aren't sexual beings. Two, it puts all of the onus on women and men are taking no responsibility for both their own sin and their own posting. And so I just think like if we're going to honor one another and submit to one another in reverence for Christ, as we're told to do in Ephesians, it can't be the women's responsibility. Like Mm. brothers, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself and stop like judging women or putting it on women to make you not be a lustful creature. Like maybe your maybe your sexual uh, depravity is the problem, hmm. not the way I'm dressing. Two, women and men, there's no reason to objectify yourself and post provocative pictures. Like, hmm. we just don't need to do that to each other because then we're commodifying one another and not seeing the Imago Day in each other. So I know it sounds like I'm talking out of out of both sides. No, of my I think mouth. it's the right I, answer. I just like there's got to be a different way to have this conversation. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, sometimes I've got friends in my life and they'll post things that I'm like, ah, yes. ladies, what do you, you know, you're God, you're the image bearer of Jesus. Don't do this. But to me, it's more about I don't want you to objectify yourself than it is about like, I don't want you to cause your brother to stumble. But honestly, I don't want to cause my brothers to stumble. And I don't want my brothers to cause their sister to stumble. Like we have to do this more as a community, brothers and sisters in Jesus, than we do as like, this is one gender's fault. Okay, I've talked long enough. That's my that's my uh, pedestal. I think it's really well put because like you said, uh, the women in my life, if they were posting like this on social media, my daughter or yeah. whatever else, I'd be like, that's a problem. And let's yeah, you'd be like, heck no. This is right. a problem. <laughs> What does it say about you? I also don't feel the need to go and preach to all women through no, social media and sign it as not. your brothers. <laughs> like absolutely I want to, not. I, and I'm sure he didn't expect this to happen. Uh, right now, it has 903 <laughs> retweets, 20,000 quote teats, and almost 7,000 likes. Like I, I'm sure that that was not what he saw coming. And uh, but yeah, I, I don't think this is a good use of social media. I think it opens up a whole nother door. It allows people, but I don't, I don't disagree with the sentiment uh, personally. And so I, I think that's where we go. And I just want to say one more thing. I, I know we need to end, but I just want to say one more thing. I, I think the hard part too, is there is a why or a longing underneath why some of us post some of these pictures. And unfortunately, Mm. a a statement like this doesn't address like the longing of the heart, a Mm. desire to be seen, a desire to be known, a desire to be loved, a desire to, to belong, a desire to express yourself, a desire to celebrate things, your body even. And so I, I just think like we have to be able to get down to what's really happening with some of these posts and address that Instead of just like, don't do it because this is a problem for men. Okay, I'm done. I'm off my yeah. pedestal for a little bit. Yeah, anyway. I think it's a, it's it's an interesting one for us to wrestle with as as the church and as yeah. parents yeah. Uh, and just as people in general. As you said, we've got uh, you got social media, you got the objectifying and all of this stuff to wrestle with. What do I do with this personally? And mm-hmm. is it my place to make public statements about it to other people? I think is is an interesting thing to wrestle with. Well, coming up next, uh, Morgan Freeman, a a viral video came back up from 2005 in which Morgan Freeman had some very interesting things to say to Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes about Black History Month. You're going to want to hear what Morgan Freeman had to say. And then Aubrey and I 
are going to wrestle with it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. Hope you're having an enjoyable evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are so glad that you're with us today. Brian, we've talked a little bit about Black History Month the past couple weeks because it's February, a time of year in America when we honor Black history. Um, Our producer, Debbie, found this incredible interview between Mike Wallace and Morgan Freeman on 60 Minutes. Now, this was in 2005, so I can't do math very well, but that was a while ago. 17 years. 17 years. Thank you. I appreciate that. 17 years ago, where Morgan Freeman had some really interesting and I would say... um, provocative things to say about Black History Month. I wanted us to go ahead and listen to that and then have a conversation. So let's take a listen. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. What do you do with yours? Which month is White History Month? (laughs) Well, well, come on. Tell me. I'm Jewish. Okay. Which I'm month sure. is Jewish History Month? Uh, there isn't one. Oh. Oh. Why not? Yeah. Do you want one? No, no. No, I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? And stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me as Morgan Freeman. Okay, so there's a few things that I want to point out before we dive in. In mm-hmm. that clip, they talked about how um, there was not a Jewish American History Month at the time. Mike Wallace said he was Jewish. That was in 2005. But President George W. Bush proclaimed the month in 2006. Now there's Jewish American Heritage mm-hmm. Month, which annually recognizes and celebrates American Jews' achievements and contributions. That said, the conversation itself was really fascinating to me in two uh, two ways, Brian. One is that um, I, you know, for for Morgan Freeman to say, I don't want to have Black History Month. I think it's really ridiculous because we need to be celebrating Black history all year long and kind of making the point like, when do you celebrate white history? Oh, well we actually don't have to take a month to celebrate it because it's like what we all have known and learned and that's sort of Mm -hmm. been the foundation of our celebration, right? Um, So I thought that was one provocative thing he said. But then the other provocative thing he said in 2005 was saying, I don't even think you you should refer to me as black and I should refer to you you as white because I think that conversation has changed quite a bit over the past 17 years. So I don't know, which one should we tackle first? Which one should we talk about first? Yeah, let's take the first one. I think, first of all, the greatest voice in all of uh, <laughs> let's, acting. Let's right? just Morgan stop Freeman. and honor that. Yes, yes, let's just absolutely. Honor, let's begin by that. And it, this is always a dicey conversation to have, right? Because I'm not African-American, right? So yeah. uh, it feels a little odd, but yeah. it's still what Morgan Freeman said here, I think, um, is is super interesting for this reason, because we long for a day where uh, specific months or specific remembrances aren't needed, right? Like, I think what he's getting at here is ultimately 
the goal should be that black history, white history, Asia, all the histories are just intertwined and told as our American history. Yeah. Right? And as exactly. our history. Yeah. I don't think Morgan Freeman would say uh, that that's happening or has been happening. Right. Uh, because you have to get back to why is there a Black History Month in gen- in at all, um, and why it's yeah. because, like you said, much of Black History I never learned it, and Mm-mm, same, um, and that's why he can say somewhat tongue in cheek and somewhat provocatively, "When's White History Month?" Because that tends to be the history that we have learned. So, uh, do I agree with Morgan Freeman? Uh, that that hope that Black History Month is, quote, ridiculous or unnecessary. I would never say ridiculous, but I think I would agree with him that hopefully one day that becomes true. Right. right. Like that hopefully right. one day you go, well, this just feels redundant because I'm learning this history all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I also don't think we are to that point yet no. as a culture. And hopefully we're growing. I, you know, I'd let that to other people to figure out if we were are, but hopefully uh, we are growing in that direction. But I do think Morgan Freeman, uh, this clip, I do think highlights the ideal. Uh, why, do, why are we highlighting a month that, that it should be just part of who we are? Absolutely. Now to your second question, I would say, uh, you know, what he's saying, about I don't want you to see me as black or as white mm-hmm. again I think is the ideal like I think mm-hmm. this is not not to be colorblind you and I've talked about that many times but to have an equality that Martin Luther King talked about right like um that that we're not judged by what color I am so again I don't think he's he's saying let's all just be colorblind and you don't even yeah. see that I'm black and I don't even see that you're white yeah but I feel like in both of these things He's pointing to an ideal that hopefully we can all point to where there is a day and some people think that day is now and so many people believe that day is sometime hopefully in the future yeah. that that there is an equality where we don't need a month and we don't need to segregate mm. and we don't need to separate and we don't need mm. to talk about these things. I, I Hopefully we can all hope for that. Uh, but I would think even Morgan Freeman would say we've probably got some work to do and much of the conversation becomes what's the work and how do we get there? Yeah. So on the first point again about the Black History Month, like we should have it all year long. I I totally agree with you, Brian, that that's the ideal. I do think some steps like our country needs to probably get better at at celebrating Black History Month in general um, before we can even consider Black History Year, like learning some history that maybe we don't know. Let's, you know, let's hear about some more people in history. Let's hear about more Black Americans that have done incredible things. Um, and, and yeah, then to begin having black history become like mainstream American history, that would be the dream. I agree that Mm -hmm. he's talking about the ideal and that's something that we all need to be, need to be working towards. I struggle with the second part because I still don't think the ideal is to say, I don't see you as white. I don't see you as black. I'm not even going to name that about, about you. I actually, unfortunately think that is being colorblind. I wonder myself if Morgan Freeman would say this a little bit differently now in 2022, because we've, you know, research has shown and anecdotally experience has shown that anytime we haven't really honored someone's skin color or their ethnicity, it's, it has caused pain and oppression. And so I, I just, I just wonder, I'm, I have no idea. I can't speak for Morgan Freeman. I wonder if he might pose that a little bit differently, perhaps talking about like, hey, we let's not be divided 
because of the color of our skin. Let's actually be united in that. But I do think we need to honor how God has made each and every person, including their skin color. Right. And I agree so with it's, that. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's an honorable thing to celebrate, hey, you're my black brother and sister. Hey, you're my Latino, Latin ex brother, sister. Hey, you're my you know, Irish brother, sister. Like that, we honor that, we celebrate that, we see the beauty of God's diversity when we do that. So I just wonder, I mean, I don't know. I just wonder if Morgan Freeman might say things a little bit differently in 2022. So I, I referenced the the very famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote before, and I think the word he uses is probably better than I don't see you as black or white or yeah. you know, Martin Luther King. I just looked it up to make sure I got it right. He in his I have a dream speech, obviously, he very famously said, uh, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, there you go. but by yeah. the content of their character. I think that's the ideal we're talking about that he laid out way back there, that there won't be this dividing that says, well, the color of your skin makes you lesser or better mm. or this or that. Mm. But instead, we're judged by the content of your character. Yeah, I certainly think it's not a matter of I don't see color. I don't yeah. see difference. Yeah. But I think it's a matter of those differences aren't what segregate us and cause us where we are on the tier and judge us. But instead, it's the content of their character. So that's, yeah, that's, good. that's the really famous Martin Luther King quote that I think is helpful to that. Yeah, very helpful. Thanks for that, Brian. Well, when we return, we're going to share with you some encouraging words about Mr. Rogers. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. It is the end of today's show. We're so grateful that you've been here with us today. And at the end of every show, we love to just send you home with something encouraging or challenging or something to put a smile on your face. Brian, someone that you and I have talked about quite a bit on the show is Mr. Rogers himself, Fred Rogers, who um, I share a birthday with, by the way. I don't know if I've oh, ever told you okay. that, but- no, I have, you have the same not. birthday as, as Mr. Rogers, so I feel like we're connected. Um, and you and I have talked about the documentary about um, the, the Welcome to the Neighborhood show and then the movie where Tom Hanks uh, portrayed him. And what a beautiful, just what a beautiful life this man lived. What a beautiful mm-hmm. example he set for so many of us. And especially, I think, for those of us who grew up with Mr. Rogers, like I think all of us have an affection in our hearts for him. Mm-hmm. Um over at StoryCorps, they shared a beautiful clip um, about Mr. Rogers and Francois Clemens, who was actually the actor who played Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And uh, I, I mean, I don't even know if I want to set this up too much. It's it's uh, Francois Clemens talking about a very iconic scene that the two of them had together on the Mr. Rogers neighborhood and what it meant to him and what it meant to a lot of people. So let's go ahead and actually take a listen to that. And then Brian and I'll come back and talk about it. Fred came to me and said, I have this idea. You could be a police officer. That kind of stopped me in my tracks. I grew up in the ghetto and I did not have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking dogs and water hoses on people. And I really had a hard time putting myself in that role. So I was not excited about being Officer Clemens at all. But there was one particular scene that Fred and I did where he had his feet resting in this plastic pool on a hot day. Oh, there's Officer Clemens. Hi, Officer Clemens. Come in. Roger, how are you? Fine, 
And he invited me to come over and to rest my feet in the water with him. Would you like to join me? Okay, sure. The icon Fred Rogers not only was showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I was getting out of that tub, he was helping me dry my feet. There, that one's dry. Thank you. And so that scene touched me in a way that I was not prepared. Sometimes just a minute like this will really make a difference. I think he was making a very strong statement. That was his way. I still was not convinced that Officer Clemens could have a positive influence in the neighborhood and in the real world neighborhood, but I think I was proven wrong. You were on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood for a long time. Yeah. I discovered a friend for life. I'll never forget one day I was watching him film a session, and you know how at the end of the program he takes his sneakers off, he hangs up his sweater, and he says, you make every day a special day just by being you, and I like you just the way you are. I was looking at him when he was saying that, and he walks over to where I was standing, and I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I have been talking to you for years, but you heard me today. It was like telling me I'm okay as a human being. That was one of the most meaningful experiences I'd ever had. Okay, so I, Brian, I mean, I'm crying. I don't know if if any human being cannot be moved by that. Uh, what what did I don't know? What were your what was your reaction? So reminded again of just the simplicity of Fred Rogers and what he did, like his show, but but the monumental things that he actually did, right? Mm, like that was on yeah. purpose what he did or other statements he made or just his kindness and who he was and what he showed kids. Um, his life wasn't easy, right? His family was complicated. And so, you know, you can get kind of Pollyanna about guys like him and it you know, he, he had his own struggles, but his, his, his message was beautiful and what he yes. did. And Aubrey, I think it reminds us uh, when you have a platform like Fred Rogers did, the ability to do things that are completely countercultural for the good of humanity uh, takes a lot of courage. What do you think the letters were when he uh, had oh, Officer yeah. Francois uh, mm. shared a shared a pool or dried his feet? Mm. You don't think? Do you think that Fred Rogers did that by accident? Like, oh, you know, oh, your feet are wet. I'll dry them. No, that is. I mean, Fred Rogers was a was a minister. Like that is a very biblical picture of. Uh, of servanthood and for yeah. uh, Fred Rogers, the celebrity Fred Rogers, the white guy and that and back in those days and whatever else to be the one to dry the feet mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the guy who just played the police officer, the guy who was an African-American on the show would have been scandalous. And Fred Rogers Absolutely. said he, he said, uh, and this is the takeaway for all of us. He said doing basically you could see he said doing what is right. Uh, is much more important than doing what is going to be acceptable. And so he did what is right. And it probably, I don't know the story, but it probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, uh, and, And it made an impact, not just on this guy, but on anybody who was watching. Absolutely. It's one of those things where we know that um, there's that phrase words do things and actions say things. And I feel like this is like both of those things happening at once. Like the yeah, action yeah. that's so simple and so sweet is actually so profound. And, you know, I, I mean, I think the other sort of like subtext is 
1964, so years before this happened on the show, 1964, the Civil Rights uh, Act outlawed segregation in public pools. But what mm-hmm. began to happen is more and more uh, wealthy people, especially white people, began to build private pools after that because mm-hmm. some of the... Um, some of that racism and not wanting to swim in a pool with black people still existed for years after that a pool segregation was outlawed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what you have in Mr. Rogers doing this is like the biblical example of washing the feet, right? You've also got this really powerful image of a black man and a white man sharing water together, like a pool at a time when um, segregation had ended legally but still existed in so many ways around like being in water together and so it's like i don't even know it is incredible to me how subversive and really like justice minded mr rogers was being while being so gentle and sweet it's i mean it is like you just don't see a lot of this in this day and age where like an act of kindness that's actually kind of a very loud protest is happening on public television and it i don't know i i'm just i i was moved by this and i think you know what i love hearing is how uh, Officer Clemens himself was like, I don't even think I realized what a difference this might make. Right. And there's a reason that Fred Rogers is there's a reason that Fred Rogers still resonates. There was two movies mm-hmm. about him within like the last two years. Why? Right. Because we're longing for people who are kind. We're longing yeah. for people who are bridge builders. We're in yeah. a culture of divisiveness and anger. And he was the antithesis of this. He's been dead for a while. His show's been off the air for a while. And they're still making movies about him and still talking about him. Why? Because being kind and having integrity and doing these things matters. And people yes. are really resonating with that now more than ever. Yeah. Oh, so good. Such an encouraging reminder for all of us. We hope that encourages you today as you kind of look around at the injustice in the world. Maybe think about like how a small act of kindness might actually be a really defiant act of protest in a beautiful way and make changes that you might not even realize could happen. And we want to thank you again for joining us today. We'll be back again, of course, tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.